X-Ray. And welcome to the Beervana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. Uh, you said you were working on your house. You're about to have housework done. Yeah, we've been doing a massive project, uh, like a 10-week project, which is getting very, very near the end. And we, by we, I mean a contractor who has done almost all the work, except we agreed to do the painting and we're installing a new staircase, which has beautiful oak stuff, which nice. I had had to do, uh, I had to actually do it twice because the first time, um, we hadn't stained it, so it didn't match the floor and the contractor just automatically assumed that we wouldn't know to stain it before <laughs> we put the clear coat on and, no. So we had to sand the clear coat off, oh, stain no. it, put the clear, clear coat back on. So I was doing that all weekend. Oh. oh, so you're doing a fair amount of stuff yourself. That's, well, that's what you meant by working. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a fraction of the entire project, right. which is huge, but, but that's actual work. So I live in a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood and literally for the last four, maybe five years, there've been some kind of construction project within a couple of houses of mine. Yeah. And now it's right behind me. They're like, putting on a whole second story and all kinds of stuff, pushing back into my backyard practically. But yeah, it's Portland, man. Our our, our, our neighbors, I, I think, are mostly unaware of what we're doing. Maybe uh, when the table saw goes, they can hear it, but but it's in inside our house where I still work. Yeah, for years. So I'm, I'm very much aware of what's happening. <laughs> for years, it's me dodging, dodging construction trucks. Anyway, we join you from... The studios of X-Ray FM here in the Falcon Art Building in beautiful North Portland. We're nearly live, sort of. <laughs> uh, this is, of course, the Beer Vana Podcast. You are Jeff Allworth. I am. You are the author of The Beer Bible and The Widmer Way, Secrets of Master Brewers. I always add stuff because you don't put enough down here. Well, you know, people know us by now. Uh, they know that you're Patrick Emerson, uh, his uh, economics professor at uh, Oregon State University. Also, possibly a history professor. That'd be cool. Yeah. Well... History of economic thought, maybe. Right. <laughs> Not my field. Uh, and across from us is our new new producer, Chase Bross. Hi, Chase. Hey, Chase. <laughs> so before we get started, we'd like to thank the Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring this episode of the Beer Vana podcast. You can find them in Hood River, Oregon, and at freembeer.com, P-F-R-I-E-M-B-E-E-R dot C-O-M. Got that in. Thanks, Freem. Thanks, Freem. For our partnership. So I wanted to ask you, we actually... I kind of assumed that you were going to be in Europe during the fresh hop season, and you kind of were, but I've been finding a lot of good fresh hop beers still around town. Have you been yeah. trying any? Yeah, no, there there were, uh, you know, it, this is a funny thing about fresh hop season. It does actually extend fairly far into October. Uh, I think when people think about fresh hop season, they're thinking it's happening in early September, but there's a lag time between the beer getting made, the harvest and the beer getting made. So uh, it actually extends a ways. But don't you think that's, more true now than it used to be that people have found better ways to use fresh hops and so they're not just a you got to drink it in three days before it gets completely grassy and gross well i mean <laughs> there's there's that but just the product the pr there's a production lag so i, I do think yeah. uh that there's that factor yeah uh, i think they're they're getting better at it and you know and, and actually if you're just dumping it into uh, conditioning tanks you can have them out really early so it's so that the, the entire they're earlier and they're later which is good for me yeah. So I got to taste a couple before I left, but they were very early. Yeah, and every year it just gets better and better as far as I'm concerned in terms of how people are using fresh hops effectively and uh, delightfully. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I was heard, I, there was grumbling on Twitter, which was weird to me because- Oh, really? I am such a pro at this. You know what I, you, 
you want a, a pro tip? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so I walk into a brewery and they got a few fresh hot beers on. You know what I do? I don't study the list. I say, which one came most recently? Uh, and that's the one I order. Boom. Uh, that's how you handle that. And I've had wonderful ones as a consequence. Yeah, I haven't had any that I find I found were too old and and uh, I so let's see. Uh, I found myself at Double Mountains local tap room and had two wonderful fresh hop beers. And they were really one of the big pioneers in the beer bible. Uh, there's the chapter yeah. about fresh hop beers. I rely heavily on Matt Swihart, the brewer there. Yeah, he was one of the first to realize that uh, you don't want to use fresh hops through the whole process. Right. And, uh, uh, really the key is a lot of dry. Yeah. And the original, it was the original shops. one killer green. Yeah. Uh, kill, yeah. Killer green. Yeah. And so that was on, but I didn't have that because I've had that before. So I had an, a different one. I don't remember what it was called, but it was a more, uh, I think like with Mosea cops, you probably, uh, wouldn't like it as much as me, but they also had the fresh hop, hop lion. I think they called it. Oh yeah. Which That's a good beer. <laughs> it's a good beer, but it's a humongous beer. I didn't quite clue in on that until like seven point yeah until they brought it in a little chalice and i was like oh dear what have i done (laughs) (laughs) whoa that was a bomb uh other good beers i've had freem of course uh i was out there in hood river and had a really wonderful fresh hop beer uh interestingly uh i had a really nice fresh hop beer at the second the penultimate night of the laurelwood brew pub in my neighborhood Mm -hmm. the southeast brew pub they actually had what i felt was a really really good uh, fresh hop beer uh, there as well. I've had a few others as well, but anyway. I had, uh, I'll give a shout out to, and at this point, these beers are, are long gone, so, you know. <laughs> so it doesn't really help, it doesn't, but doesn't really next help, year. The breweries get some credit. Uh, I will give a shout out to Culmination Brewing, not so far from my house. They had a version of their Phaedrus IPA, uh-huh. uh, which was one of those ones I had at the Loyal Legion. And uh, I said, what's your freshest fresh hop, fresh hop? And they said, this came this morning. And I said, dial me up one, my friend. And it was amazing. And then another one that I had that was really nice was a Boneyard. Our friend's a Boneyard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they had a really nice one. Excellent. Yeah. So, and it was a pale, which was perfect. I, 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 to your point about the hop line, um, 5% beers, I think, express fresh hop really well because yes. you don't have a lot of competing flavors. So Yeah. So the other place I had fresh hop beer, which was uh, unexpected, was I finally made my pilgrimage to Machine House in Seattle. Yes, I saw that in on South Seattle. Uh, you tweeted it out and got uh, uh, quite a bit of attention. It was cool because you tweeted out a photo of the beer engines. Yes, yeah. In fact, I was trying to tease you with little close-ups, asking you where I was uh, when I texted you that evening, but you weren't live on the text, so I had to give it away before you got to guess. But the close-up of a beer engine, I was thinking you might clue in right away. Uh, apparently they have, well, not apparently, I know they have uh, a tasting room in Seattle proper, but the original location is in this old, I guess, machine house. It's a big, giant industrial building with a huge smokestack. It's is, a little difficult to find. Is it, It's south of the city. It's yeah? south of the city. It's just north of Boeing Field. Um, so it's not easy to get to. I just happened to be staying overnight uh, nearby because my son had soccer games in Seattle. <clears throat> and so uh, I thought, well, uh, I'm finally here. So I, yeah. so I went I went on a Saturday night close to closing, but uh, it was wonderful. It's a very austere location there. They've got the production brewery and a little tasting room right there. It's not fancy at all. It's an old brick industrial building, but it's a really neat setting. A uh, really great person was there serving and... Um, talking to me about the beers and they had two fresh hop beers. I think I only tried one, uh, 
both you know all it's all cask right so it's all mm-hmm. f- it's all f- uh, fresh but i was really interested to see how they would they would handle a fresh hop beer and it was it was really delightful and to your point it was a very low uh, as you might expect sure. probably i think it was something like 4 5 4.5% 4. light uh, and yummy but uh, the dark mild and the best bitter, as you might expect, were both phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, so that, sounds, that sounds really good. And I have to say, it's it, you know, uh, Cascale is not popular in the Northwest. It's a little bit more popular in Washington than it is here. And Machine House has somehow managed to carve out an identity. Uh, you got a lot of attention on your face, on, on your tweet. Um, I think that they, they have done a thing that is hard to do in beer, which is to take a niche style that there's not a, a lot of native love for and mm-hmm. build support, find their audience, build support, do it right, you know, and, and, uh, and, and get a lot of attention and, and they seem to be thriving and it's delightful. Yeah. And I'm happy to report that they're doing it on, on the basis of really excellent beer. Right. Right. <laughs> and so it's great. So the, all they have is, is, uh, cask beer there. It's all beer engines. Um, and it's delightful. So when you're in Seattle and are in environs, uh, go find it. Very cool. It's, it's a little bit difficult to find the original place, but uh, it's worth the it's worth the effort. It seems like that's a place I want to check that one out. I want to go to the source. Yeah, you should go to the source. Yeah, and the breweries there. Right. Some, exactly. Someday we'll go there and we'll get a tour. Where possible, I like to go to where the beer is brewed. Yeah, yeah, and it tastes very fresh. Uh, oh, and I'll say one other thing, which I really liked was. Uh, I ended up being the last person there, uh, me and Simon, in fact. Uh, he, he was uh, munching away on his dinner. Uh, they do not have food there, but they encourage you to bring food, so we did. That's the Seattle way. Yeah, and um, she, uh, since I was the last one there, she was starting to sort of tidy up at about 8.45. They closed at, <laughs> they closed at 9. Anyway, she said, I'm not yet, she, she, she called over to me and said, hey, just so you know, I'm not yet cleaning out the lines. So, uh, so you can still get some more beer if you want, which, uh, was great in both ways. Both that was very polite and nice. And I enjoyed that. But also the fact that they're very fastidious, which you have to be with cask ale and, and cleaning out the lines daily is important. That's so, right. Uh, anyway, so that was, it's a live beer. It'll go bad. That was big fun. All right. So we should turn to the topic of the day, which is, uh, your talk with Mark Dredge. That's right. Uh, so, um, you said we have a special guest on the show. I guess that's right. But you interviewed, uh, Mark in London. That's right. Uh, he's an author. Uh, he was days away from, uh, releasing his forthcoming book, which I have here in front of me, which you can all see as I, as I raise it up. (laughs) (laughs) A brief history of lager, 500 years of the world's favorite beer. Uh, it's a deeply researched book, but one written in a personal style full of anecdotes. In this interview, Jeff, you and Mark discussed some of the more interesting discoveries Mark made in writing the book. Indeed we do. And it's pretty entertaining. And I think uh, a nice tease for the book. It'll, I think people will want to uh, read the book. Uh, Mark is, you know, became very knowledgeable about lager and actually, uh, sorry, uh, dredged up. Uh, a, a fa- <laughs> so, had to be done. Dun, 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 I had to do it. Uh, a fair amount of uh, info about loggers that I was not aware of. So good, good on you, Mark. Ah, excellent. And this is being released both in the UK and the United States. In the United States, it's Octopus Books. All right, there you go. Because I'm reading the back of the cover. I got him. That's news <laughs> I can use. All right, good man. All right. Well, we'll get to that uh, interview uh, soon. But of course, before we do that, we have to delve into the news. So 
In news so fresh, it's not on our script. Wait, we have to have the breaking news noise. <laughs> breaking news. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we have a brewery closure in Portland, Oregon. Uh, the Rock Bottom Brewery, which has been in downtown Portland and was for a long time the only real brew pub in downtown Portland, they have closed their uh, their outpost there. And um, it was a weird situation this morning where some people on social media were saying, hey, is this closed? And you went to, if you Googled it, um, uh, the Google, you know, Google pops up with information about a brewery uh, when you do that. And it said, permanently closed. Whoa. And then if you click on the link for the website, you get an error warning. Um, so I did something that uh, shocked even me. I, <laughs> I behaved like a reporter and called the brewery. And a nice woman answered in a cheery voice. And I thought, oh, uh, maybe it was not closed. And, uh, and then I asked if it was closed and her voice changed. And she said, yes, we're wow. closed. Yeah, that's, that's, so the Rock Bottom Brewery is a chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, outlets in many different places. We don't know what's going on. Right globally we only know what's going on locally but it has a fairly interesting history for many years van havoc who we had on the pod recently founder of gigantic brewing co-founder Fa- with uh, ben love of co-founder gigantic of brewing. gigantic brewing uh was the brewmaster head brewer he told us but i can't remember exactly what his title was but essentially the brewmaster there. yeah he was the head of he was the head brewing there head of brewing uh and that was during a time when it had different owners and they were more into local experimentation styles. He could do a lot of his own things. And so he was there for many years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like over a decade. And then he told us he eventually left when new owners came in and kind of wanted to homogenize the place and put a corporate stamp on it and basically wanted to push their main beers. Uh, And if people have heard our uh, interview with Van, you know that he is not necessarily a uh, shut up and go along, get along kind of guy. So yeah, he, uh, he let him know how he felt about that and they let him know that the door was right there. Yeah. So I, uh, so rock bottom does have a prime location downtown. It's the only, now there's brew, brew, real brew pubs, brewing pubs, uh, but they're all the, in the, on the North side in the Pearl. Right. So it was the only one in sort of the business district area, the sort of the center of town. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder what will happen to that space. Yeah, I do too. Hey folks, new space with a brewery in the right. <laughs> Maybe something. C- certainly very cheap. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and so that's uh, on top of other local closing, local closing news, how do I say it? Um, which... Uh, we're, we're falling around the skip. Actually, no, I don't even know how to say it. Which is local brewery Lompoc is also uh, going out of business. That's right. And again, kind of abruptly. Uh, and so Lompoc is going to uh, sell the brewery, sell all of its locations, but it will keep the uh, the pub in my neighborhood, uh, which is the Oaks Bottom Pub, uh, open. My understanding is that uh, Jerry Fletchner... Fector. Fector. <laughs> so I was close. <laughs> In other words, that's what you're saying. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it sounds like this is going to be his sort of ongoing business, uh, what he'll continue to run, but it'll be run as just an independent pub. Right. He'll um, continue to sell Lompoc beer as long as there's Lompoc beer, but then after that, it'll just be a pub selling other people's beer. Yeah. Uh, uh, I didn't I didn't have a chance to do research and figure out when the Rock Bottom opened. Uh, uh, Lompoc opened in 96. I think... Uh, Rock Bottom was right around there. So I think they're both roughly the same vintage, 20 to 25 years old. Yeah, and this is on the heels of the news reported uh, last week or the week before when that Laurelwood uh, sold out to 
the Ninkazi partners yeah. called. Anyway, so uh, their pub actually is right around the corner from the yeah. Oaks Bottom pub in my neighborhood. And so the Laurelwood Southeast pub is now closed as well. So there is kind of a, a theme here. Mm-hmm. Well, there's more than kind of a theme here. These are old uh, in Portland institutions. Uh, and I'm going to be maybe just slightly critical and say that they're ones that I don't think have necessarily kept up with the trends in the beer world. Uh, you correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think any of them have, for example, like a barrel age program and they have a lot of sort of beers that um, I guess could be described as old school. Lompoc does have a barrel age program and okay. actually they have a really cool one of their sites was called the Sidebar. Ah, yes, of course, yeah. And uh, it was actually one of the coolest pubs in the city. Uh, it had, it, it felt, it had just great pub feng shui. It had uh, the the barrels in there and you went in there and uh, it felt like there should be a crackling fire uh, and it felt cozy and wonderful and you could get a nice uh, yeah, goblet of uh, barrel-aged beer. It was a really cool place. Yeah. And for, as we just said, for many, many, many years, Rock Bottom hasn't failed to produce anything of any interest. Yeah, and they always existed in a weird space because they're this chain from outside of Portland. Yeah. Uh, and if they hadn't been in downtown, I think they would not have survived as long. Yeah, as I think did. for the last, you know, 10 years, they've been surviving on like hotel trade and things like that. Yeah. Um, business people downtown maybe as well. Uh, so I don't know what it portends, but I th- certainly think there is one theme, which is one, well, two themes. One is it's hard to continue to keep that buzz and to keep your brand fresh. But two, that if you fail to try, if you uh, fail to keep up with all of the trends and buzz and hype, um, then you risk getting left behind. Yeah, I and, think that's right. And three, it's just a tough business. I mean, it's never been an easy business. Yeah, uh, I had a couple of blog posts about this and I, looked back and if you include things like the Widmer uh, brew pub closing and uh, somebody else's pub also closed I can't doesn't can't remember but we had Alameda close we had Burnside uh, and then a few pubs close if you if you throw all those into the hopper uh, all of them the youngest brewery was nine years old and they went up to over 30 years old so these are you know I mean these are older places that are closing and I think one of the things that I, I thought of when I looked at the stats is uh, we've had 4,000 breweries, over half the breweries that have opened in the United States have opened the last five years. Right. And they're driving all the interest right now. But, you know, you and I are old men. And <laughs> we remember when uh, Burnside was a new brewery. We remember when Laurelwood opened. Uh, we remember when these, you know, we yep. remember these things. Yep. We remember when they were young and cool. Yeah. Uh, and. Now we're looking at these young and cool breweries, and there's going to be four thousand breweries that all become long in the tooth at about the same time. Yeah, and that's going to be interesting. Yeah, well, I guess what I would say is there's sort of I sort of have nostalgia a bit for these old places, but that is superseded generally by excitement for what's new and fresh. So I'm just as guilty as anyone else. Yeah, but it just you know I because they were both in my neighborhood, I visit both of those pubs not terribly infrequently, uh, and for many years just haven't been very excited about what they had on tap. Yeah, I agree. And I, I was also thinking like two of my favorite breweries in the city are Upright and Breakside. And Upright just had ten, its 10th anniversary and Breakside I think is pushing 10. So, and they're, you know, I think uh, routinely regarded as uh, among the most interesting and cutting edge breweries in the city. So it is possible to continue to lead the charge years after you've you've been found uh, founded. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But you I think you have to think ahead and and uh, 
not outdated, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you have to be nimble. You really have to be on top of trends and keep producing great beers, you know, and all these new styles. I think we should throw it out there to the folks too. This was uh, nice. This provoked the, these things are provoking a nice discussion on online because people live in other cities that don't have anywhere near as mature a market as Portland, and they're not seeing the same kind of closure. So it's interesting. Report back to us on what you're seeing and whether you find this alarming, what's happening in Portland, or just your reflections. Let us know what's going on where you are. Yeah, indeed. I'm hoping. I'm hoping, by the way, that somebody, some other local brewery, picks up the Laurelwood space. Um, because my neighborhood could use it. Yeah. Please. <laughs> well, you have a bunch of great dive bars. Uh, yeah. Well, that's the thing, actually. It's surrounded by, <laughs> by very popular, there's, there's three basically, uh, uh, sort of, let's call them traditional, uh, establishments of alcohol consumption. Screw that. Know. They're dive bars, okay, man. So Loud, of, proud. Say, but, it, but, say it with me. But they've kind of been, they've kind of been uh, adopted by more of a young hipster crowd, right? They're, sure. Uh, and there's three of them right there, plus there's the Yukon down the street. So um, yeah, my neighborhood's kind of known for for those. And they're fun. They're great. They're cool. They've they're got great. like pinball and, and, yeah. good, and they have they all serve great beer. And, we should do a po- uh, yeah, podcast on dive bars. Portland has more dive bars, I think, than, than most cities. We really excel in this all so right let's we'll cool. put it on the list yeah put it on the list all right well, we should move on indeed uh so let's turn this podcast over to the interview that you did with mark dredge in london uh you want to um set us up sure uh i was actually staying with mark and his lovely girlfriend emma uh in their small flat in hackney oh nice yeah and uh they had a spare room which they graciously let me have uh and i really appreciate that they saved me some money and it was also just really nice to hang with them and then mark also took a day off and walked me around and, a, and an evening off. So he, he was serving as a tour guide for me. And during our day off, we stopped uh, and had uh, pints of Braybrook Keller Lager when we recorded this. And the pub, uh, I'm not going to remember the name of the pub. <laughs> the pub he want, we, we stopped at this place because uh, they, it's this brewery that he really likes and they only sell, uh, they, they don't have, I guess, that I, if memory serves, they didn't. Uh, have it on draft, but he knew they had bottles there. So he went to this place where they had bottles and, uh, and recorded this uh, podcast. So, um, one of my favorite styles, Keller beer. Yeah, it was great. Um, why don't you give Mark's bio and then we can go roll tape? All right. So, Mark Dredge writes about beer, food, and travel. He's a multiple award winning writer, having won the British Guild of Beer Writers Beer and Food Writer of the Year in 2011, 2013, 2014, and 2016. That's impressive. It is. And Beer and Travel Writer of the Year in 2016. He regularly appears on British TV talking about great beer, and he's been published uh, in print and online around the world. I know. He's kind of a badass, and he's constantly doing tv stuff and he writes for the guardian and he's got a whole thing going on there nice all right so let's uh turn it over to you and mark yep let's do it all right uh this is a a a long interview and we'll uh just leave the the rest of the podcast to this and come back uh at the end sounds good all right i am here with mark dredge recently uh a famous book author in the united kingdom uh, five books you've written. This is your sixth. This is number six. This is number six, and this is called. Uh, it's not called just a logger. It's logger. A brief history of logger. There you are. Brief history of logger, and we're going to talk about logger now. Perfect. Uh, so, tell me how. Let, let's do a little meta work and talk about how 
uh, the idea for the book came about and what you were hoping, what you were shooting for with the book? I think I just wanted to learn more about lager. So I think I'd, I'd gone all in on craft beer, like probably like most people had. Just one in everything. I wanted to try every single beer that I could possibly find. And I think once you get into lager, you, you re- when, no, sorry, once you get into craft beer, lager becomes the other. It's the thing you leave behind. Right. And you move on to IPA, sour, stouts, imperial stouts, everything. And I, I certainly felt like the, that way. And I went to the Czech Republic for the first time. And I was like, ah, it was a, it was a press trip. This was years ago. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. It's a press trip. And I was like, I just didn't, I didn't really like lager, but I'm going to come because it's a free trip to the Czech Republic. The first glass of fresh Czech lager that I had, I don't even remember what it was. It wasn't a classic. It wasn't Pilsner Quell. It wasn't Boudoir. It wasn't one of those. I had it and I was like, oh, oh, okay. I'm wrong. I, I, got, I got this completely wrong. And I think from that point, really early on, I realized that lager was more than just, you know, Bud Miller Coors, Carl and Carlsberg, Heineken's, and, you know, this samey beer. And I wanted to know more about it. You know, the more I wrote about beer, the more I wanted to know about lager, and the more I heard these, like, top-line stories. But the more I craved deeper understanding of that, and there wasn't a book about lager, which baffled me. There are so many beer books out there, there's so much history written. But, you know, lager is 95% of all beer in the world. Right. No one had written the history of this drink. And I was like, well, someone's got to write it. Like, maybe that could be me. <laughs> so then, and, you know, I used to work for Pilsner Quell Brewery, and that gave me a much greater understanding of lager in general. I got to travel to the Czech Republic more often, Germany more often, just because I liked the beer there. Yeah. And yeah, and it, it kind of come from that, but it was certainly, I saw that there was missing in the market, the story of lager hadn't been told. So this is, am I correct? This is the first uh, historically heavy book you've written, is that right? Yeah, yeah, the first book with no picture. <laughs> Fair. So, um, was that daunting to get into this project? Uh, yeah. You're not a historian, and uh, uh, history. There's a lot of nerds out there who might call you on this. So. That's that's the hardest part. That's the thing I'm now like the most most scared about. I guess like the the pre-publication anxiety. But sure, it's I'm not a historian. I really like beer, and I really like the social context of it. And for me, the approach was not hard history, and it's certainly not a book about how to make beer. Mm-hmm. Like, if you want to read this book to learn how to brew lager, this is not your book. Dave Cobb has written that book. Well, a million people have. That's Another the one thing have. we know, right? Yeah, how to make it. <laughs> I was way more interested in, and I think it's more tangible, is the social history of beer. Yeah. And actually, how people used to drink this. And then how this beer managed to travel around the world and what it was like to drink that where it went. You know, what was it like to drink in Bavaria in the 16th, 17th, 18th century? When it got to America in the middle 1800s, what was it actually like when it arrived? Like what, was, what was going for a beer like? So how did you find that out? Just lots of, lots of, lots of reading. What, so people describe it? Yeah, and, and well... To me, the really interesting thing that I discovered was the stuff before lager came in. So it was these old stories of old American taverns, and it was stories of kind of just what people ate. Uh. Like the, the prominence of pork and bread in the diet, and beans and, and whiskey. Uh-huh. You know, yeah, we drink a lot corn. of whiskey. Yeah, so yeah. The, one of the great stories I've got was about the amount of corn in the diet, and that was corn that was grown. Uh-huh. So, you know, if you didn't eat corn directly, then you ate a pig fed on corn. Right. 
And if you didn't have those two things, then you had corn distilled into a whiskey. Which you certainly drank, because everybody did. Because everybody did. <laughs> yeah, and they drank enormous amounts of it. Yeah. And they didn't really drink beer. America wasn't, certainly wasn't beer drinkers. Amen. And, until... Until well, the Germans came. Until the Germans came, and even then it wasn't. It was this, it was this silly curiosity. And you see all these old news reports of America, of um, the early German beers, and they're caricatures. Right. Like real caricatures <laughs> of, you know, people with enormous moustaches and big bellies and drinking big glasses of beer and talking in these silly German accents. And right. Even, even like in literally cartoon form. Uh-huh. You've got caricatures of, of German drinkers. And it took a while, it took a, a, a while before it became cool, or it became, cool's the wrong word. It didn't seem much being cool in the 1860s, but you know, before it became popular, before it transitioned between Germans, German Americans, and then Americans. Right. And that for me became the interesting stories. It was how did Germans give America this thing, and then how did the Americans take it on, but then change it? And that's happened everywhere. Well, before we get to America, let's yep. hop back to Bavaria. Yep. Uh, how did you find out? So, I will confess, this book hasn't even been released yet. Your launch is next week. So, yep. uh, this is. I, you, you left me a copy and I started reading it. And um, there was a wonderful anecdote to start the story about how you looked at an original copy of Reinheitsgebot mm-hmm. at the. Prince, the, the Prince of Bavaria's castle. There you go. <laughs> so talk about the early days of lager in Bavaria. Were you able yep. to suss out when it started? Because when I was writing the beer bottle, I could not suss it out. It was like, well, sometime maybe in the 1400s. We don't know. Yeah, no, and I, don't, I don't think we ever will know. I think the best we've got is early references to beer of bottom fermentation or under fermentation is how, how they called it. Uh-huh. It was just something different. Um, and it was isolated, it was, it was discovered first in Upper Bavaria on the border of the Czech Republic. Okay. So that region. And I think what I, what I kind of figured out, what I kind of... Which is, what was that, Franconia then, or is that... Uh, yeah, or, I guess or, Franconia, yeah. yeah, yeah Franconia, okay. Bavaria, Bohemia, around there. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the better development of it was more into Franconia, mm-hmm. that, that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what it was, it was the conditions needed to create lava formed around that time. And this is it's completely unique to Bavaria. Like this wasn't anywhere else. Right. But it was the conditions needed, and the conditions were the yeast, the temperature, and then the time. So yeast, so I'm not, and I'm, I'm still not quite sure which one is the most important, because they, they all had to come together. Right. And I guess the yeast is, is key, because some point in time, and this, this really bugged me during the research because I couldn't figure it out. And there were scientists working on the family, working on the history of uh, yeast family tree. Right. And they couldn't tell me what they've discovered because it's not released yet. And I was like, oh, God damn, there's things in there which I might need to know. But oh, I think the clue that they gave me in the end was that what they think happened was that it developed in the cellars. So essentially, I guess going back to where I was in the beginning, was that the key thing with the yeast is that lager yeast is different to ale yeast. Mm-hmm. But half of lager yeast is ale yeast. Mm-hmm. And there was a hybridization event that happened at some point, somewhere, somehow, mm-hmm. in which Saccharomyces cerevisiae hybridized with another Saccharomyces yeast. The other Saccharomyces yeast has never been discovered natively in Europe. Mm. 
We don't know where that comes from. Is this the one that they talk about being from Patagonia or something? Yes. Which is impossible. <laughs> Which is impossible. It's very yeah. far from, it cannot from, from come. Bavaria. And it was before Columbus. It was before any of that. Yeah. So, it, But it has been found in Tibet and China. Hmm. So it must have come somehow through the Silk Road. Hmm. However it happened, we, I don't know if we will ever know how it happened, but somehow two yeasts hybridized. The key thing is though, the non-ale yeast was cold tolerant and liked the cold. <clears throat> right. Now, you combine that with German brewers who realized, which now sounds just obvious, that when you drink beer cold, it tastes better. Mm. Like, come on, what's better? A warm beer or a cold beer? Like, cold beer is better. So they, they found the conditions to make it cold. And they also probably discovered that uh, when they made it in these cold conditions, it was it tasted better longer once they released it. Of because course. of microbiological stuff we know now that they couldn't possibly Yeah, do. they didn't understand how or why, but they knew that if they kept their beer cold, it tasted better. Yeah. Like nature's refrigeration. But that, obviously that was way before artificial refrigeration, way even before probably that they used harvest, harvested ice. Maybe mm. they did, we don't, I don't know that. Um, but they just put it underground. Put it underground, it's a fairly constant 8 degrees Celsius. Was, mm. you, know, you tell me the, the Fahrenheit for that one, I'm not sure. Uh, 40, 42, well, something? Uh, 10 is 50, so. Okay, so 40s. 8 is like 46. Yeah. Say. And it's a fairly constant. 45. That. And that yeast is very happy at that temperature. Yeah. So they had this yeast, they had this temperature, and then they gave it time. Hence the lagering. The lagering means to store. So you've got this yeast, but this yeast is rough, this yeast is raw, this yeast needs time to evolve. Like to begin with, this is producing all kinds of crazy esters, probably primarily diacetyl. Mm. Like not so much an ester, but it's producing a shitload of diacetyl. And you don't want that. But as we know, the longer you leave it, the more likely the yeast is to kind of gobble up that diacetyl again. But it took months. Mm. Like it didn't take days, it didn't take, you know, 12 hours in a brew house when you hold it at 14 degrees. Right. It took, it took months. But you leave it there for long enough, it comes out good. I, I will tell an anecdote that comes via you. Uh, <laughs> you invited me to go to the Czech Republic back a few years ago when you were working for uh, Pilsner Quell. And uh, when we did the tour, which I had done before, we had an opportunity, the, the tour guide, I think it was, what was that guy's name? Robert Lebowski. Robert Lebowski uh, allowed us to drink uh, beer that was not it was it, it had finished fermentation but it had not reached its month I think it was maybe a week old or two weeks old and it was nasty it was some of the nastiest beer I've ever had it had a lot of sulfur in it like an yep. intolerable amount of sulfur and it was really gross so yeah it was one of those moments when I when I recognized what it would what you know what those old brewers were confronting and they're like well we can't drink this yet let's leave yeah. it and see what happens and, yeah. and it was the opposite of beer at that time like at that point you're fighting bacteria. Right. Every beer is going to go sour. Right. Particularly 500 years ago, like they've got no control really over cleaning. They didn't have cleaning chemicals. They didn't have any of this stuff. Like they, they just try and keep it as clean as they possibly can. So basically, you brew it quickly and you drink it quicker, so it doesn't go sour. And but lager was different. You left it for a long time to make it better, and by leaving it for a long time, it stayed better for longer at the other end. And there were some yeasts. Uh, cultivation practices, I think that in Bavaria were probably more sophisticated than other places. Did you discover anything about that? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Um, and the story of like the Hefner, like yeah, the yeast yeah, master, which I first read about in your book, <laughs> and then discovered or learned more about it with um, Matthias Trum at he's Schenkeler. The guy, and, I mean, he's from. the guy that yeah, yeah. tells everyone that one. But it's, you know, <laughs> it's kind of where it comes from. Well, he's... 
he does know, research and exactly, you know, he exactly. Knows, so. and, and you know, and it's nature nurture. You know, nature gave the conditions for it, but then the brewers nurtured that, and they they self selected the ones which tasted best. Right. You know, and the ones which worked better, they, they used again and again and again. And the ones they didn't, they, they took that out. And the, and the Heckner would uh, like repitch the yeast, so it wasn't totally random. They were they yeah. were they were selecting for the yeast, and, yeah. and, and that's why it was probably able to develop over time and created this ecosystem of, of yeah, yeast. Absolutely, and more than that, I mean, this was a difficult job because brewing wasn't a daily activity, because six months of the year you couldn't brew. Right. It was like it was illegal. It was illegal in Bavaria. Yeah. Like you couldn't <laughs> brew. So then the, the Heffner's job was actually to maintain like a dried yeast to make sure that it stayed Which is remarkable. Okay. Yeah. To then bring it back the next season. Yeah, because if you read the technical manuals now, they say that, you know, <laughs> even in proper conditions, you you have to chuck it after a certain period of time. Yeah. And yeah, so that's crazy. I mean, at least they had beer that had been in barrels for months. So there was still yeast in there and it was active and good. So right. they could... Do, I guess do stuff with that. But, right. I mean, these are things which are. But it's pretty sophisticated. If you, that what you just described would be considered really sophisticated in other places in the world, I think. Yeah, uh, sophisticated, but probably more empirical. It's not. Mm-hmm. There was no instrumentation to help them out. Right. So it's touch and feel and taste and you know just knowing it. Right. So you told me a really cool story about Doppelbach. Do you, yeah. you you can repeat that one, but it's not actually in the book. So do you have other cool yeah. stories about different the development of different uh, lagers that were fascinating? So I think when lager started, actually, if we go back to the Rheinheitsker box, this yeah. is kind of like the origin oh, yeah. of can, beer. You can tell that story. Let's That's go back to that. Good. Yes. So lager, or the conditions for lager came six, seven hundred years ago, but actually... It was kind of professionalized by the Reinheitsgebot in a way. I kind of I kind of made that argument because it kind of made a nice subtitle for the book of 500 years of the world's favorite beer. Sure. Um, but in a way, what happened was by banning, by making barley the ingredient that's used in beer, it made lager the beer of Bavaria. Mm-hmm. Basically, there were two types of beer. There was brown beer and white beer. And white beer was normally an ale. Brown and often contained wheat. Mm-hmm. Brown beer was barley based and was a lager. And if you ban wheat, you it, make you may lager the beer of Bavaria. Explain why they were brown and white, because I think that's lost on people. Yeah, so brown and white was the difference between, essentially it was the malting process. So brown beer was more roasted, mm-hmm. so they heated it, whereas white beer, that it was air-dried barley. So it was slower, um, and to be honest, it was just more of a pain in the ass. It was more inconvenient. Um, it costed more... Did it cost more? I'm not sure. Anyway, it was more of a pain in the ass, and it was more inconsistent. Um, And it always went into ale, which was brewed quickly, sold quickly before it went sour. And people didn't really want that. People wanted good beer. Yeah. You know, beer's a daily drink. Beer's important. So you wanted to you wanted to make good beer. And as we know, the conditions of lager made better tasting beer. So by banning wheat, you make barley the important grain. And because of how it worked in Bavaria, you made lager the beer of Bavaria. And by the time Ryan Heiskabel comes around, I think we can infer that, to your point, uh, lager had been around long enough for it to enter the rules that they're talking about. So it's actually uh, a fairly established brewing process by that time. Is that right? Yeah, uh, yeah. As far as I know, and as far as we can tell, it was just it was just the daily the daily process, the daily practice. It was normal to make a beer and leave it cold, and then leave it for long enough that it tasted excellent. But then there were two, two kinds of beer, and that, that developed later in the 16th century, like 1550s or so on, but it, probably, it was probably established before then. You had 
winter beer and summer beer. Mm. So you do two different forms because you could only brew between uh, the 29th of September and the 23rd of April, okay. something like that. You could not brew in the summer, yeah. it was illegal. Um, because so, the beer would be gross and spoiled. Yeah, it must have been based, based upon that. But actually, if you look at it as well, and additionally, if we think about milk today, you buy it in sacks, it's always available, it's always ready. And you right. can store it in a silo. Right. But if you go back 500 years, you were making your malt the day before. Yeah. If it's too hot to make your malt, you can't make malt. If it's in the summer, you can't physically do it. And if you haven't got barley, you can't make malt. And, and, which is key. And also, you don't have refrigeration, you don't have modern techniques, so your malt and your hops sitting around for a year probably get pretty stinky and gross. Yeah, so by exactly. the time the summer comes around, it's been a long time since harvest, and that's probably also yeah. challenging. Exactly. Like Pilsen Quell was brewed the 5th of October. Like, that's not a coincidence. Like, they had to wait for the hop harvest. Mm -hmm. They had to wait for the grain harvest. They had to dry their hops. They had to make their barley, and then they could do it. They could not, if they were ready two months earlier, it was irrelevant. They uh, couldn't have brewed it then. When you're, you're talking about uh, October 5th, 1842? 1842, yeah. When, when Roll made his first one. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. That's really cool. But they couldn't have brewed it earlier. Right. <laughs> Never occurred to me why it was October. Of course, that yeah. makes all kinds of sense. Like, it's not coincidence. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. But like going back to the winter and summer, the, the winter beer was cheaper. And it was only lagered for a couple of months. So you would say you would brew it in... October, you'd be drinking it maybe the end of November, maybe beginning of December. Um, and it was shank beer, tap beer, it was kind of your quick brewed beer. Um, and it was brewed slightly different in smaller barrels, so it carbonated a bit quicker, things like that. And then you had your summer beer, which was brewed, say, January or February, and then laid down until May, June, July, August, even September or October. So it matured longer and longer and longer um, in bigger barrels. And it was more expensive because it was seen as better. Sure. So you kind of celebrated the change of the season with this better, longer matured beer. So describe Merzen and Oktoberfest, and I think this is very confusing <laughs> to Americans, and what, what's going on there? Um, I believe that they are modern constructs <laughs> okay. written for a contemporary beer style guide. Um, Oktoberfest didn't necessarily become a style of beer I don't think it's ever become really a style of beer. Like, fest beer is a celebration beer that you drink at a festival, but you go to different festivals around Germany now, mm -hmm. that fest beer is different. Interesting. Um, the idea of the Metzen was, I mean, the name is March. It comes from the beer that was brewed in, brewed in March. It's, I mean, and I've never, to me, this is one of those IPA stories. It's one of those stories okay. that it's just been passed along so much, and I've never actually really discovered a better version of this story. But... The story that I've gathered from, from the book is that it would have been brewed towards the end, towards March, maybe uh -huh. probably February, really. But it was the beer that they had to leave for the longest. This is the one that they're brewing before the, the they, they are forced to stop brewing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you would put down maybe a more robust beer, maybe a beer with potentially some more hops in it, maybe some more more. But you would put it down because you know you would have to leave that longest. So you would you would need the you would need the beer to be more stable to last into October potentially. Right. That's a long time. Yep. Um, particularly without particularly without thermometers and saccharometers and ways to measure bacteria, any of that, any right. of that stuff. Like, right. Like it's a chance. So you're just giving giving the best possibilities that you can for 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 medicine. But I really think this wasn't a common or popular beer. I see. Like the stories of it are brilliant. 
which makes us think, yeah, this was awesome. Like you put you brew this strong beer and you drink it in October and it's you have it at an Oktoberfest and it's great. Yeah. Nah, I mean that did happen like once. Yeah, I mean it is it is worth noting that Oktoberfest the first one was eighteen ten. Yeah? Yeah. And you're talking about stuff that was starting three hundred years earlier. So yeah. there's a period of time that these things don't exactly connect. And the first time that a Metzen was drunk at Oktoberfest, as far as I can tell, was or like the Metzen, modern Metzen, the pale Metzen, yeah. was like eighteen seventy two or something. Yeah. And it was you know, it was it was fairly controversial because um, I think it was Schottenhammer, which is the main tent now where they tap the first barrel of Spaten beer mm. that starts Oktoberfest. Yes. And I believe they ran out of beer. We should come back to Spaten because that's an important thing. Okay. You told me an Very interesting important. story. Good stories there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, they, ran out, they ran out of beer. It was maybe, maybe it wasn't. There. Anyway, someone ran out of beer and they had to try and find some other beer. And all that was available was a brewery's medicine, which was like considerably more expensive uh, than the other beers available uh-huh. and they were like oh fine we need beer we'll sell it right and they did and somehow a tradition caught on and we talked about this earlier traditions in germany tend to last a long time right so you had this new kind of special fest beer like before that and actually even around that lots of different beers have been sold at Oktoberfest. There were Czech beers at Oktoberfest at the end of the 1800s. Really? Yeah, yeah. Budvar, so the, Pilsner, Quo were there. Like, it's not unique that it's this, the, that now it's the, the big six. six. Yeah. Like, that's, that's very new. That's oh, very more, very recent, anyway. I had like, no idea. Yeah, historically, you know, there were lots of different beers there. Huh. That's yeah. amazing. Before we go any further, we'd like to thank Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring the Beer Vana podcast. Freem has a new slate of beers coming out soon, including La Mure, a blend of fresh Oregon fruits left to mingle with this white wine barrel aged ale. Aromas of blackberry pie and limoncello with notes of acai and white pepper provide uh, prove a little mixing and mingling goes a long way. And Juicy IPA, Freem's West Coast spin on the trend that started in New England. Juicy IPA features big fruity aromas of peach and star fruit and jammy notes of orange sherbet, papaya, and white grape. So let's talk about Spot and uh, Gabriel Settlemeyer, and this actually has a cool English component, uh, yeah. which uh, is, is fun. So tell tell how pale lagers came along and how what, what the role of Spaten played in Yeah. Um, and so, so you know, maybe 600 years ago, it was brewed. Maybe 500 years ago with the Reinheitsgebot, it was, it began a commercialization and a professional professionalism professionalization right and that developed for a few centuries but it was still very empirical and it was actually still small scale Mm. when you get to the 1830s you get several breweries who are starting to increase in scale but they still don't really have a a scientific or industrial foundation to what they're doing Mm -hmm. and they're looking around Europe and at that stage at that time it was very common for guys who are maybe 18 20 mid 20s to do study tours, if you're of a wealthy family at least. Okay, okay. So you, you know, you could take a year out and you could go and study, you know, inverted, inverted comma study, you know, go and travel <laughs> around and kind of see, see the world a little bit. Um, and Gabriel Sedemeyer from Spartan Brewery took a year out. Actually, he'd been doing this before. He'd been, he'd been traveling around central Germany and Czech Republic a lot already. Huh, he'd had a good foundation of knowledge. 
um, and he decided to travel through Europe and into the UK. And the UK at this time was so far beyond everywhere else in the world. The industrial revolution there had made brewing an enormous industry. The scale of the breweries in the 1830s in, in London in particular was phenomenal. Right. Nothing like was in Germany. And they had way more technology, they had way more volume, and they had way more... It's just capabilities. They just simply didn't exist in Central Europe. Yeah, I, I'll just second that. It's when you look at brewing history, it's shocking to see how far the UK was ahead of everybody else in the world. Yeah, and I, singular I time in the world. I can't tell you all the technology that was developed that created modern brewing happened in the UK in this period. Yeah, and it was, it was so far ahead. Yeah, like the US. I, I couldn't tell you who the biggest brewery was, say, in 1830 or 1840. But they would not have been big and they would not be steam power, they would not be doing anything like that. Nothing near the scale. Probably like a couple thousand breweries or, or a couple thousand barrels or something. Probably quite small. If that, yeah. yeah. If that. Um, but the UK was so far ahead. So these, so Sedelmeyer from Spartan, Drea from Klein Schwechter in Munich, uh, Vienna, just outside, and two other dudes. So there was four dudes on this trip. They, and imagine, like, like, this is four like 20 year old guys, the sons of brewers. Like, in my head, these I are guys. I got this just... wrong in the beer bible too. I did not know there were four. I only know the, the the famous two. Do you know who the other two guys were? Uh, yeah, there's a guy called Joseph Mindel. He's always the one that's forgotten. Huh. Um, he was from his family brewery in. Uh, I can never remember the name of the town. Brownau. Basically, it was the town. It was the town that Hitler, Hitler was born. Oh. On the Ch- so uh, the German Austrian border. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was from there. And he was there, I think he was the one that traveled with Sadelmeyer, or, yeah. And then Drea traveled with another guy uh, called Lederer from Nuremberg. Okay. And Lederer was still a brewery, and it, you can still visit Lederer now. Really? Yep. I would like to do that. But, but it seems to be less of a brewery, it's certainly, well, I guess, the stories of Spartan and Klein Schwechter have changed anyway, yeah. and Lederer has changed too. But yeah, but there were, there were these four guys young guys, and they traveled to East London, kind of right where we are now. We're in Whitechapel right now, and kind of right here. They would have been hanging out right here. That's very cool. In 1836, something like that. And they wanted to learn about brewing. And they went to these breweries, and they spoke English. Um, Sedelmeyer spoke good English. He studied English, and he spoke French. He spoke a bunch of languages. He's a smart guy. Um, They really wanted to go to the breweries, and they wouldn't let them in. So they went to... um, And why was that? Because they were so far technologically advanced and it was like industrial espionage, that kind of thing? I think, I don't know why they didn't let them in. I don't know why. Maybe, I mean, if four weird speaking people from Central Europe arrived at a brewery that's making, I don't know, 500,000 barrels, I don't know how big they were at the time. Yeah. Like, people are like, well, no, we're not really set, we don't really have a visitor center right now. We don't have a brewery tour going at 3 p.m. But there was some kind of visitor tour that they could do. So they could see enough that they, it piqued their curiosity. And they did some kind of tour three or four times to get as much information as they could whilst not being able to get full information. Yeah. And then um, either Sedemeyer or Drea had a book with them from an English writer. And I was, I, I can't remember the name of the book. And it's a, I, sh- I should remember that, I should, I should know this name. But anyway, he had this book with him and it was basically telling the story of how to make beer. And they saw the authors addressing this book, and in my head, they just knocked on his door, and he was there. 
Um, and it was mutually beneficial for both of these people to meet because the Germans could tell this English guy who knew nothing of European beer production, he could tell them everything about it. And all of a sudden, this guy had a volume two of his, of his book. So he told the world how lager was made. And it's really interesting to read kind of lager production from the 1830s, 18, yeah, 1830s. In reverse, this author could say to these German and Austrian brewers, he kind of wrote them letters of recommendation. So he, they could then take these letters to say Bass Brewery and to breweries in Edinburgh. And they kind of got in with this. Like the letter, I don't know what the letter said, but I imagine it's like, dear sir, these guys are all right, let right. them in. <laughs> like, they know what they're doing. Yeah. So yeah, and it come from that. And yeah, and they wanted to understand industrialization. They wanted to understand scale. They wanted to understand technology, saccharometers was like a real new piece of kit. Yeah. Like thermometers were there and they knew how to use them, but but like the understanding of what the difference of temperature meant wasn't really understood. Right. Um, and, and, how then, that the mash, and then how it affected the mash. And then how it affected the mash, how it affected then fermentation and maturation, all of these things all around it. Like just differences in temperature is, is, is fundamental. Totally. And then you get to the, the molten side of things. Where, this, this so this is the question. Right, yeah. I finally answered the question, I got around to it. Um, but then they discovered the, the, the molten techniques, which were different, kind of this indirect heating to get malt that was paler in colour. Yeah. They travelled around the UK, they did London, Burton, Edinburgh, back to Burton, back to London, and then back through to back through to their hometowns. I don't mean to put you on the spot, and you're not Martin Cornell, so maybe <laughs> you don't know the answer, but um, remind me what was happening in British brewing regarding like the... Burton IPA pale ale thing at this period. Are we are we into proper uh, pale malts or is it still kind of darker pale malts? Um, I don't know the I don't know the exact answer. Yeah. Um, it's they went to the Bass Brewery in Burton. Mm. Um, I don't know what beers they were making there. I don't know what beers they understood from there. Um, was that the biggest brewery in the world at that point? No, no, far from it. Oh, really? So it hadn't, it hadn't yeah, become yeah, its no. thing. Yeah. I think they went, the London breweries were way bigger. Way bigger. Uh, at that point, Were they still making porters then? Was that still in a porter? It was definitely yeah. a porter. Yeah, 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 that's true. They were probably it was definitely a porter. Um, they went to Bass. But the story they told of Bass was that the person that they met basically just seemed to want to go out, like, shooting animals and hanging out and didn't really want to show them anything in the brewery. Fascinating. So they like, didn't get what they wanted from any of these places. Wow. I guess, one, the, the, I guess the one key story that we haven't told here is that when they're in Edinburgh, they managed to build up some rapport with a the brewer there, John, John Muir. Mm. Um, they would R- hang out M-U-I-R? with him. M-U-I-R? M-U-I-R. Like the uh, environmentalist in American, you probably may not. Uh, I have no idea. Uh, it's yeah. a super. It's like the first environmentalist in America. That's amazing. Okay. Anyway, never mind. Yeah. So Jomo, they 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 built up this rapport with this guy, and he would like finally tell them a bit about like his beer and a bit about what was going on. Mm. And one one anecdote that I read was that his recipe book was so secret they had two padlocks on it. Mm. So he's going through two padlocks, and they finally got to wow. kind of see this stuff. And Edinburgh was actually incredibly sophisticated as well. It was part of yep. the British Empire, and they were really sophisticated here. Yep. So like Edinburgh and London were like were, were very important brewing centres yeah. and export centres as well. Right. And that was probably a part of their journey to understand that beer doesn't need to just be local. Eighteen mm. thirties in Bavaria, like that beer is not being sold outside of there. Right. You're making beer from where you're where you where you live and. For this, the, the streets nearby. 2019, that's still basically true. Well, yeah, we're kind of going back again, right? Don't worry about far away, just make it make it nearby. But yeah, uh, but 
I imagine they were looking into that. But but they they, they were in Edinburgh. But they they've got these new tools. They've got these new technology. But they, they weren't really being able to play with them, really been able to use them, and they weren't being told enough about them. So this is where the idea of the industrial espionage came in. So they, they would try to steal samples of beer and they, they manufactured some kind of long pipette in a, uh, like a cane, a walking stick. Uh-huh. So they would steal samples of beer and then take that home to their hotel room where they had, or wherever they were staying, where they had their science equipment. I really think they were just playing. Like, I don't think they were necessarily learning too much about that. I think they just wanted to play with their thermometers and play with their play with their saccharometers. It's the wrong yeast, so it didn't, wouldn't have mattered anyway. They weren't. Yeah. It was like they were going to take that that uh, Burton yeast back to Munich or Vienna exactly. and make a beer out of it. They, no, they definitely weren't going to do that. And I think it was just a matter of wanting to understand stuff better, wanting to put into practice some of the things that they that they'd learned. But yeah. it's a great story, you know, like. Couple of, a German and an Austrian infiltrating a, an Edinburgh brewery with cloaks, like, and they're like 23 years old. Like, they don't need to be walking with a cane. <laughs> and why are they dipping it in my beer, like pulling out samples? But you know, it, it's kind of what happened. But they had to do it on the sly, I'm sure. Yeah, they're like, doing secret, and, <laughs> and they, they were writing home. They said, "Why we know this stuff?" Because Sedemoy was really good at writing back to his father, who owned who owned the brewery. Yeah. So he would write this stuff back, and, and we've got we've got these stories. And they end up going home, and actually, what happened was. Sedelmeyer and Moore, Moore exchanged yeasts. So Sedelmeyer brought home some ale yeast, or was sent some ale yeast, and, as, and started to, or tried to brew Scottish beer in, or an ale in Munich. Huh, it didn't quite work out. Muir got a sample of Spartan's lager yeast and tried to brew lager in Scotland. And there were reports of him saying how clear it was, how like kind of dazzling and bright, and how impressive it was. But he couldn't keep the yeast alive, ah. so it only survived several generations and several batches of beer. Oh, poor guy! And, it, and I mean that could have completely changed the history of lager brewing in the UK. Yeah, and we didn't get lager brewing here until properly until like 1870s maybe, um, and it didn't catch on like significantly until 19. 1950s really in reality yeah but that could have completely changed the history of, of beer in, in Britain yeah in that's a way. interesting but yeah but those guys said my Andrea to kind of tie up the story they went back and they they put those new techniques into practice and I think overall really the most significant thing that happened was that they they understood their beer better mm-hmm. they were able once you understand it better you can then scale it more right so then they were able to brew more of it and to make it always taste the same um, and then the key part with the grain is that not so much in Munich but certainly more in Vienna mm-hmm. so Munich they did brew some lighter beers but actually the first Helles didn't come until 1895 right so this is so far in the future or 1894 maybe so far in the future so Munich beer just... and, and Gabriel at that point was an old man right he was he was alive but he wasn't uh, I'm not sure if he was even a lot alive he was, it was his son yeah it was his son it was his son that brewed it and it was a big scandal because yeah, because it was a dark beer's town. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But then you had this prominence of Pilsner coming in and they realized that they had to do it. They kind of they, it was kind of time that to to do it. Yeah. And the Augustina brewers were really anti it. But three years after them being super anti it, they had their own money. So they were on it. <laughs> but it was the Vienna Popularity will change a brewer's mind. Exactly. And sales. <laughs> exactly. Actually, one of the, one of the That's key... why everybody makes a hazy IPA right now. Yeah, because you can sell shitloads of it. Yeah. And that was the same with Hellas at the time. Right. But one of the problems at the time was that the setup of pubs was that they had one beer. 
like, at every brewery make one beer. Like if you add another beer, like then what? Like how do you serve it? <laughs> like we only have one beer. Like so, uh, you know, the, it was it was a different time. It was a different time. But but really, the key was that the Munich beer it just got better and it got bigger and it was able to be more scalable. They used paler malts, but actually their beer stayed dark. And Bavarian beer historically was dark beer, yeah. brown beer. Vienna beer, they used paler malt and it became more of an amber colour. And that was the first beer that really kind of caught some kind of traction, got some popularity and it actually travelled a bit. But that was curtailed really quite quickly within a few years by Pilsner beer. So you've got the, the brown lager, you've got your so brown we, Bavaria, then you've got amber Vienna, then you've got golden Pilsner. We got, we got Pilsner coming in 1842. When, did, when yeah. was uh, Dreher brewing his first Vienna lagers? About the same time. Okay, about the same So time. it took him a little while, actually. His, his brewing history was a little bit more complicated because his father had died a little bit before this. I see. So he had to take over a failing business, ah. which his mother owned, and there were some complications there. And he basically had to get a brewery working. Then he was brewing... Bavarian-ish style beers, but I think they were top fermented, I think they were ales. Oh, and then he finally moved into lagers, but a bit later, so it took him a little bit longer. So fast. But then he brought this in, but then Bedrea became um, the biggest brewery in, in continental Europe. They were enormous. Mm. They were a phenomenally big brewery. And initially they were famous for Vienna lager, but actually in reality it was Pilsner that made them more popular. Mm. One interesting story about those is that they um, were the first brewery to use multi-site production of the same brands. Oh, really? Yeah. In and the world? In the world, yeah. Really? Yeah, so they had the Vienna Brewery. They had one in um, very north of Italy. And they also had one in Czartech, so Sats. So Ooh, in the Czech Really? Bottom. Yeah. So they had three different breweries at least where they were making making their beer. Uh, and in um, Hungary as well, Budapest. Was the, and they still have, they're, they're, they're still the connected to Budapest, yeah, right? They're yeah, they're still there, so they still have the drivers and they still have like the old lager s uh, sellers there. Oh, so yeah. fascinating. So was the, the, I was, this has become a deep mind, but anyway, uh, uh, the, the flow of influence based on all of this, did it, was that how Pilsners came back to Vienna was because they established a brewery in uh, uh, Bohemia or was it, do you, do you know about that? No, I'm not sure actually. Yeah, that's interesting because I'm not sure. brewers always talk to each other. I mean, their whole story is one of, of, yeah, of yeah. communication and so it's yeah. interesting how things go back and forth. And they were and definitely communicative. And you know, the, and Grohl was a Bavarian, so yep. Czech lager was Bavarian lager for yep. decades. Yeah, the brewers at that time, they did talk to each other. Like there are stories of brewers, let's say it's the 18, let's say it's the 1880s, you've got Sedelmeyer, you've got Dreyer, two of the biggest brewers in the world. Mm -hmm. Don't know about Pilsner at that time, so let's ignore those. Heineken comes in at that point. Right. Heineken is, is buddies with these dudes. You've got Hat in Strasbourg, that's Cronenberg. They were friends. Oh, okay. JC Jakobsen at Carlsberg, he's like their granddaddy. <laughs> like, and his son, Carl, like he's, he's contemporaries of all of these. He's the same age as these guys. So like these guys are all hanging out with each other. These guys are all talking to each other. And, and this, this fascinates me, the idea that maybe we could bring back all of these brewers right now and stand them in a pub and just be like, guys, look, look at this. They're Stella Artois. They, they would know Artois. They would know Guinness. They would know Carlsberg. They would know Heineken. They would know Cronenberg. And the fact that you've still got these now, it's incredible. Right. Okay. Wow, three minutes. Okay. Uh, we just got the call here at the pub. Um, okay. Let me ask you a quick question then about modern lagers. 
we you, you started out by saying it's not it was it was sort of not fashionable for Americans or for uh, uh, modern craft beer people in the UK and America to be in the lager. But now that's changing. So wh where's lager's future? How do you see things going forward? We've, we're drinking a lager right now. We should say we're drinking a Braybrook Keller Lager, Keller Lager, which is uh, in connection with the Mars Brewery. So it's sort of a, yeah. So it's, it's the foundation of this beer. The heart of this beer is certainly Franconia. Yeah. But it's brewed in a, in a farm in Leicestershire in the middle of the UK. So these kinds of beers are now coming. We're, we're having these kinds of beers in the United States as well. Talk about lager going forward. I think people are just more and more generally aware of the stories of beer and the different styles of beer. And I think the more you drink beer, the more you just want beer-flavored beer. Mm -hmm. You know, you the more you become, the more you crave a clean, easy-going beer. Like I love a hazy double IPA, sure. But actually, I take much more pleasure from a really well-made lager. And I think. There's a maturing of the palate that ends up coming back to a lager. Most of us start with lager. Mm -hmm. We start with bottles out of our dad's fridge or whatever it may be. It's just cheap beer at, at college, at university. We just pick up a beer and we drink it. Right. Everyone starts there, don't they? No one starts really on a double IPA. Maybe then, they do. I don't know. Maybe I'm now, actually. Man, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> yeah, maybe I should go back, go back to uni for a couple of days and right. see what's going on. But yeah, no, and I think once you realize that maybe there's something beyond that, there's this appreciation or reappreciation, perhaps that lager can be great. Lager doesn't have to just be fizzy yellow beer. I love fizzy yellow beer. Fizzy yellow beer is delicious. But you can also have really complex, interesting, golden, nicely carbonated yellow beer, or whatever it is. And I think there's so much to explore in lager. Lager's a family. Lager's not just like sure. one thing. There's a, an enormous variety that comes with lager. And the, the fact that that's being celebrated now is, is brilliant. And, you know, it's a skill, of, a skill of brewing to make these super clean, super crisp, super balanced beers. And actually, balanced is probably the best word here. Is these beers have to be balanced between the grain, the hops, the yeast, the water. Everything has to work together. Right. Like, you can't hide shit in this. It's got to be, be really well made. And there's something really enjoyable. And actually, really, like, going around in all sorts of different circles, we're coming back to what really is important about lager is that we can have a couple of pints of lager and we can drink them but actually we're here having a chat we're here having a conversation and the lager is kind of there and we're enjoying it but actually it it helps with it's a social lubricant sure a 9% a double IPA doesn't have that impact because I'm putting it on Instagram quickly and then I can't remember what I'm talking about I don't really know where I am anymore I've lost, I've lost my head and I'm about to fall asleep because of all the hops well, lager's, lager's not that beer lager's that beer that you drink when you want to share an, an experience with someone, you want to have a couple of pints, you want to go to the pub, you want to chat, drink a lager. Absolutely. And there is also, it's interesting, uh, I, I've been struck by this paradox too, where there was this old idea that you went from lager to something more sophisticated and better. But the more you drink beer, the more you realize, actually, I'm coming back to lager, which is even more sophisticated and more like, you know, a very, very, very well-made Hellas or Pilsner is... Yeah. some of the finest accomplishment in brewing and so you coming wine, like isn't it you're, you're looking you're, you know it's like full circle back to lager yeah but then you never quite never quite connect to the end of the circle because you're looping off in a new direction you're oh. like or you're like, you're like leveling up it's almost like the yes. uh, a parking lot like driving up 
you know, the levels. A famous American once said, history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. Yeah. So there you go. Exactly. It's cyclical, but, <laughs> but it bounces up levels. Yeah. I don't know. All right, tell us the name of your book again. Uh, it's A Brief History of Lager, 500 Years of the World's Favorite Beer. Mark Dredge, D-R-E-D-G-E. Yep. All right. Uh, look for it at your local bookseller. Yep. Thank, Thank you so you. much, Mark. <laughs> Thanks. And once again, the book is A Brief History of Lager, 500 Years of the World's Favorite Beer. The author, of course, is Mark Dredge. And you can find it in the U.S. Uh, Octopus Books is the publisher. And in the U.K., it's Kyle Books. So uh, look for it in an independent bookstore near you. Or, right. if you must, go online and find it there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that was really cool. Yeah. It was great to hang out with Mark, and as you can tell, uh, we both love lager, and we had a great time. Excellent. All right, so that essentially wraps up this edition of the Beervana podcast. A few words going out. Once again, we want to extend a hearty thank you to Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring this episode of the Beervana podcast. Freem Family Brewers uh, are located in Hood River, Oregon, and you can find them at freembeer.com, P-F-R-I-E-M-B-E-E-R.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. By the way, I think this iTunes thing is outdated now, right? With a new operating system. We talked about this last time. We did. And I looked at it and it just says iTunes. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. No, there's a separate podcast app now. When you boot up your phone, it says iTunes. Oh, you haven't got the new operating system. I do. And it really is irritating. Man, I hate the new iPhone <laughs> operating system. <laughs> I don't know. Wherever you find us, keep finding us. You'll find us. That helps other listeners find the show. That is to rate us and review us and and uh, subscribe. That's we, right. Please do. Five stars, please. Yeah. We'd love to hear from you. So please send us your questions or comments to jeff at beervanablog.com or on Twitter at beervanapod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog and tweets at at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beernomics. All right. Uh, we have nothing to cheers, but we'll I'll, I'll sort of mentally cheers you with a nice glass of Keller Lager. That's right. Uh, so, uh, Nasdravi. <laughs> cheers, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs>